0: Good morning. morning. Forgive me, I'm still eating, so I'll try to hurry up before I start reading here. Thank you. So our scripture comes from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, My foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart would not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I've asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple, where he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity adversity. He will hide me. Under the cover of his tent, he will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices. In his tent, with shouts of joy, I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me. God of my salvation, even if my father and mother abandoned me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Blessed be the word of God. Thanks Thanks be be to God. Uh,
1: reminder about prayer cards if you've got prayer requests. Now's the time to kind of sneak them up here. Also, um, Heidi and I are talking about ways to do this better. If someone sees kind of a pretty little box or um, to have one made that we could put maybe on the communion table or somewhere up here, that might be a better way to do that. And if someone wants to talk to me about that, I'd love to kind of discuss that further as we kind of come into how we're doing this together. Um, I'd be happy to have that discussion. Um, let's go to God in prayer. Mm-hmm. God, I begin this sermon as I do every Sunday. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our collective hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So everyone has their food. We have either eaten or are eating. And if anyone argues with you that eating isn't biblical, send them to me. So remember a couple months ago we visited the text of John 21 and Jesus made breakfast for his disciples. And I don't think that there's anything more loving that you can do for someone than to cook with them breakfast. The so when someone asks what Jesus would do, my answer is almost always cook, eat, sit down, and fellowship with them and we'll go from there. Food and eating is central to God's work in the world. Norman Orsba writes in his book, Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating, and I know some of you are like, this text is Psalms, but we'll get there, I promise. (laughs) We don't really understand food until we perceive, receive, taste it in terms of its origin, and in the end, God is the one who provides for, communes with, and ultimately reconciles creation. All of creation is a physical manifestation of God's love made tasteable. And given for the good of another. As Wurzba says, all of creation exists solely because of the Lord's desire for a world full of delight. So friends, eating together is biblical. Today as you eat together and love on one another, you are doing the relational work of dining, worship fully with one another, and with a God that intended for you to share abundantly. So as you do so, let me dive into the message for today. This morning, some of you may notice that we have deviated a bit from the lectionary. It's summer, and we've been spending our time as a congregation in small groups, as a board, and as individuals visioning for us what's next as a church. During the summer months, many pastors do sermon series. And friends, I know you thought it was my first summer here, and you might miss out. (coughs) Nope, nope. Next week, we're going to start a summer series on... What do you might ask? But the feeding of the multitudes. There are four feeding stories in the gospels. They differ just a little bit from each other. One differs greatly, but in all seriousness, I think it will be an interesting venture for us to gain some knowledge and determine how engaging the particulars of these gospel stories impacts the life of our congregation. If someone wants to preach one of those, just let me know. I must confess, I'm a little apprehensive preaching this text today. I got some pushback on my last time I preached a psalm. And psalms are difficult. They are. Um, But the night that I spent on that blanket in Delta, this psalm came to me. And psalms are kind of an unspoken, forbidden territory for preachers. And yet, every single time I have preached a psalm, real work has been done in my own life, in my own heart. Deeper, more meaningful conversations happen around me, and the sermons seem to t- stick around and do what they do longer than my own words have power. Again, the last time I preached a psalm was in front of you, it was before I was hired. Though I was yet to be called as your pastor, during the past couple months we have been doing some intense visioning work. And I have begun to plant some roots here in Iowa as a pastor, as a voice in the community. And I've been increasing my own devotional work and prayer time to discern what God has in store for me as well. And I have a friend who's a bit more Pentecostal than I am. So we're talking about our current ministry context. And I was looking for scripture to meditate on, and I was stuck in that airport in D.C. on that blanket. This blanket. If you didn't see it, I'll show it to you. This blanket. (laughs)
0: You can almost see me through it, right?
1: (laughs) This fancy blanket. And I was reminded of this practice in the apostolic tradition called rhema words. And I'll tell you what that is. It's a scripture uh, practice where you open up the Bible. And it doesn't always work really well. Sometimes you get some really weird stuff when you do this practice. Um, You open up. And you invite the Holy Spirit to work and do what she, they, he, whatever you call the Holy Spirit. You open up the Bible to the text that the scripture invites you to hear. So my friend invited me to do this, to give this practice a legitimate test run for my own discernment and the life of this congregation that we are in partnership together. My friend said, you trust the lectionary every week to offer you choices and the scripture to meditate on. This is just a different process in which the spirit is your guide and the lectionary host. So I sat on the floor at Reagan National Airport with my thin line Bible and prayed with my shoes off and swollen ankles from travel and walking miles and miles around D.C. It wasn't pretty, y'all. After slowly opening my eyes and seeing my fellow weary travelers, man, we looked rough, stuck in similar predicaments, I opened my Bible to the text of Psalm 27, where I was greeted with the following heading, David's triumphant song of confidence. Now I'm going to deviate just a little bit from my script here. David writes some weird stuff. I mean, I don't know, like, I'll get to the Psalms here. But the Psalms are like peering into David's, like, sometimes David's triumphant. Sometimes he's real angry. Like, it is. I don't know. It's like if you wrote throughout your day, throughout your weeks, and you're you're talking to God, but you're also talking to your husband and your brother, and like you're mad, you're angry, you're in love with God. David writes some weird stuff. But David in this particular text is triumphant. So had I been in a chair, I think I would have fallen off. But the divine had the forethought to have me seated on the floor in my fancy delta blanket. (laughs) So I giggled because that same friend that offered these words said that all God always makes it rain blessings. And I'm like, God does not make it rain blessings on me. How many of you have heard that? You know, God makes it rain. Ray, I see some folks nodding. No, God in my world gives me a gentle mist. And that's okay, because here in Iowa, we don't we don't want a whole lot of rain, right? When we get a whole lot of rain, God makes it flood. So I will take a gentle mist of just enoughness. So God gives me a little blanket of just enoughness in my airport and some headphones that don't work. And that's okay, because I needed quiet time. So the Psalms, for those of you, I'm here's my history piece, so those of you who like to unplug for a minute and color or do whatever you do. The Psalms, commonly referred to as the Psalms or the first book of the Ketuvim in the Jewish text or the Hebrew text, or the third section of the Hebrew Bible, or the book of the Christian Old Testament. The title is derived from the Greek translation. I have it in Greek here, but it's called the Psalmoi, meaning the instrumental music. And by extension, the words accompanying the music. So they're sung, right? They're songs. So David is singing this to god it's like this don't leave me it's like his beloved it's very interesting especially when he's mad i'm wondering how he's like singing this when he's angry um, the books in the anthology of individual songs or psalms with 150 in the jewish and western christian traditions and even more in the eastern christian traditions so these are kind of redacted for us so a great deal are attributed to the name of david but his authorship is not universally accepted by scholars. So for today, we're just going to accept that David wrote this, right? We're just going to assume that this is David's. It says we're not going to argue about that. Um, we're going to also think that it's this shepherd king's uh, David, right? We're just going to kind of not argue that. He was a shepherd, then he became a king, and then he was lost, and then he became kind of triumphant. We're just not going to. We're going to assume that all that's where we came to here so this biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann talks about and this is what I want you to understand about preaching from the Psalms and why we don't do it all the time as pastors because Psalms are sticky Um, but Walter Brueggemann writes it's not easy or obvious or usual among us and us he's talking about preachers and pastors to preach from the Psalms they're treated like forbidden territory for many preachers In addition to the breathtakingly wide variation of use, sometimes elusive and poetic imagery, they have a recurring adversarial tone or divisiveness. Perhaps the major hindrance to preaching them is the fact that with few exceptions, the Psalms are human speech and emotive, and they don't claim to be anything else. Now, I'm not a biblical scholar. I have enough biblical knowledge to be dangerous up here. I do spend a whole lot of time with my Bible and other Bibles and various translation. So I'm going to affirm Brueggemann, who is a biblical scholar. But I'm going to take it a step further, particularly regarding the Psalms that are widely credited to David. They read like a diary. So if you we were to go to your home and open your diary. Who's giggling over there? Right? That you write to your most beloved, the person, and I don't not necessarily your spouse, but the person that you're most intimate with, might we find things that aren't necessarily factual about that person, but they're your truth in your experience of that person or thing that you're writing about? Right? So when we talk about the Psalms, there is truth, but there may not be facts, right? This, it's about your experience. And it, this is David's experience of God. So this is how we have to understand the Psalms. We are peering into David's intimate experience with God. And we know that David is God's beloved. We know that God is on David's side. But we also know that God is on multiple other sides of everyone else, right? God is on Israel's <coughs> side. God has multi- God is on Abraham's side. But this is David's experience of God. Okay? So psalms are songs or letters with the same... <coughs> letter or song they're both a love letter some of them are lamentations and david's experience goes up and down with god and they're not in some sort of chronological order so i pull this one out to show you yeah he's triumphant here but pull out another one and he might be like oh woe is me god has left me but did god leave david come on did god leave david God never left David, but did David feel left? Did David feel abandoned? Absolutely, but God never abandoned David. But that is David's experience of God. So how many of you have ever felt loved? Okay. How many of you have ever felt angry at drivers around you in Russia? Lisa, raise your hand. I have driven with you. relationships, conveying your deepest emotions. I know. How many still do? Right? loves God and that God loves David and that this is an intuitive and emotional account of a deeply loving relationship between both God and David. So that's what David seems to be doing with the Psalms. He's either highly favored and extolling God with all of his gratitude and love and Gifts, and he's falling all over God, and doing these beautiful things. Or he is writing this song, and I don't know who. The only person I think of, like Fiona Apple and Av- Avril Lavigne. I don't know. Have you, I, Ty, Ty pops their head up, right? They write these songs, right, when they're mad at their person. Oh yeah, oh, yeah right. They write these songs, and they're mad at their people. And David writes these songs, and he's mad at his God. But God didn't do, God didn't send the flood. God didn't send, God didn't make David do the things that David did. David did what David did. Yeah. And he's mad at God for the things that David did, you know? So now let's talk about David a little bit here. And I know, I'm sure somebody back there is going to be like, oh, David's great. And that's fine, I'm not going to take that away from you, David's great. But I'm going to talk about David a little bit. So you can zone out if you think David's great. So, the title, you know, in 27 is the triumphant song. So David's confident, right? David is triumphant. And he's sharing these things as he sings and he's begging God to remember him because he knows that (laughs) poor God cast him off when these bad things happen. That's David's truth, and that's fine. We We know, we kind of think, maybe not. So, I don't think that David's fears are about God because David knows that He's favored by God. Does anybody maybe know what David might be fearing? Punishment. Maybe, right? He might be fearing punishment because David might not be perfect, right? Does anybody, we know David's story not from the Psalms, but from some of the other books. David is chosen. And yet he is chosen to do some bad stuff, Right? And I think the message in here... How many of you know the story of Bathsheba and Uriah? All right. So I'm not going to go into that. But David, though David was holy and completely chosen by God... Yeah, children in the room. I get that. David's decision-making was not holy, right? Yet God didn't abandon David, even though he made some unholy choices. So David still gets to triumph, even though he made some unholy choices. God's silence did not equate to abandonment or lack of fulfillment to David's promised lineage and heritage. God was ever-present and ever-faithful to David, even amidst David's unfaithfulness, not God's, right? God is with David and journeys alongside of him, providing sustenance of material and food and a gentle mist of enduring love. So Frederick Buchner, in his book, A Room Called Remember, tells a story about the same title. i got to stay to the script on this one because it's not my story. So Enidie recounts a dream he's had. He says, I dreamt I was staying in a hotel somewhere and that the room I was given was a room that I loved. I no longer have a clear picture of what the room looked like. And even in the dream itself, I think it wasn't so much how the room looked that it pleased me so much. It was the way it made me feel. It was a room where I felt happy and at peace, where everything seemed the way it should be and everything about myself seemed the way it should be. Then as the dream went on, I wandered off to other places and did other things. And finally, after many adventures, ended up back at the same hotel, only this time I was given a different room. And I didn't feel comfortable at all. It seemed dark and cramped, and I felt dark and cramped in it. So I made my way down to the man at the desk and told him my, pro- uh, my problem. In my earlier visit, I had this marvelous room, which was just right in every way. Kept explaining, the trouble is I can't remember what the room was and I didn't know the number. Didn't know how to find it and how to ask for it. The clerk was very understanding. He said he knew exactly the room I meant and I just had to ask for it. All I had to do was ask for it by name. So then of course I asked him what the name was He said he would be happy to tell me, he said, and then he just told me. The name of the room, he said, was Remember. Remember, he said. The name of the room I wanted was Remember. That was what woke me, it shocked me awake, and then the shock of it, the dazzling expectation and unexpectedness, it's vivid to me still. I knew it was a good dream. I felt that in some unfortunate, unfathomable way, it was still a true dream. I think we have to remember that not all triumphs, and it's not all laments, The love affair we have to go go with God is about forgetting us. We forget about these psalms and sacred texts are for Jewish and Muslim siblings as well. They connect to us through the tapestry of faith, rich in heritage and tradition. With God, it's remembering that God has us. With Frederick talking about this room, it's about remembering. It's remembering that we can go to God in that room that God has with us. The room is called Remember. Remember that space. Remember it's not all... When you're in a bad place, you have good places. When you're in the good place, you have to remember, oh, I did some bad stuff. It's just about context, right? We have to remember that if God is on David's side, God universally wants all of creation to be able to write a song of triumph and celebration. And the truest and most holy contemporary song would be one where all are able to thrive and experience shalom or flourishing, which is where I feel that our experience of open communion or the Eucharist allows for the fullness of God and the understanding of kingdom building to happen here on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, friends, I wonder how you might find deeper meaning by remembering the fullness of God's plan for your life. What does your remember room look like? How are you when you find that dark, uncomfortable space And you're like, this isn't it. This isn't God. What does your remember room look like? And that doesn't mean God doesn't take you to uncomfortable spaces. (laughs) There's something to learn from those uncomfortable spaces, right? I think mine looks a whole lot like a table or a farm rich with color and humanity and creation. That's when my triumphant song of celebration will come into its fullness. But David's song of triumph we should all be able to experience that. All of creation, all of our siblings should be able to experience that. The earth should be able to experience its fullness. Not just the Davids of the world, not just those of us in this room. All of us should be able to experience that song. And for me, that is what God wants for us all. Amen. Amen.